0: Welcome to episode number 10 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring Oscar-nominated editor William Steinkamp. On today's episode, we discuss the importance of the editor-director collaboration. Among the directors we highlight include Oscar winner Sidney Pollack, Joel Schumacher, Martin Brest, Steve Kloves, and the late George Hickenlooper. Among the films on today's agenda include Tootsie, starring Dustin Hoffman, Out of Africa, starring Robert Redford and Meryl Streep, The Firm, starring Tom Cruise, The Fabulous Baker Boys, starring Jeff Bridges, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Bo Bridges, A Time to Kill, starring Matthew McConaughey, and Casino Jack, starring Kevin Spacey. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter for the latest updates, at jogroad. And now we join Oscar-nominated editor William Steinkamp as he discusses his introduction into the business, working with his father Oscar-winner Frederick Steinkamp on Three Days of the Condor with Sidney Pollack and on one of Billy Wilder's last films, Fedora. From what I understand, the first film that you worked on as an assistant was uh, one of Billy Wilder's last films, actually, Fedora. Uh, which you worked on with your father, uh, Frederick. Right. So what was your experience uh being on that film and was that really kind of your first learning experience about editing?
1: Uh no actually I I started in uh in uh seventy four, seventy five as an apprentice on Three Days of the Condor, which was Sidney Pollock picture. And that was actually my first experience in uh in just generally in the in the business actually having to do things. And um I was it was it was good, you know. At the time, I wasn't in the union. I was trying to get in the union, and and uh, but but picked up an incredible amount of experience. And that's really sort of where I started liking what I was doing. wasn't too sure to start with, and then uh, and Billy Wilder, yeah, Billy Wilder scared me. <laughs> Billy was, uh, you know, I mean, I was young, and he was a, a just this legend walking around. He and I, a Diamond and and. It was a big language barrier. It was a you know, it was a mixture between German and and English. So we had a, a an assistant who was German, spoke German, and I didn't speak German, and she didn't speak English. So that was kind of an experience all by itself. But Billy was you know, Billy was a master. I mean, people people uh, some people don't really quite understand how amazing he was with his camera. You know, he he camera cut. He knew exactly what he wanted. He was the most prepared person in the world, you know. His styles and everything were always, you know, way ahead of time. And at that time, when I worked with
0: him, people thought it was more of an old style, but he really knew what he was doing. So he really uh, knew where one shot led to another in terms of the editing process. So when he had a shot list going in to film a scene, he was really prepared in terms of how he saw it being cut together. And I, I think
1: he was not only prepared, but he had his, you know, I mean, demanded his actors be prepared. Yeah. And really, basically, with him is more. You know, cut the slate off, that's where it starts, and please go as far as you possibly can before I say cut. And it was, uh, you know, it was an experience. I kept thinking, wow, this is going to be fairly easy, you know, if, if this is all there is to it. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, but then I soon found out it wasn't. But uh, the, he, was, he, was, he was a really interesting man, you know. Was, I was very, I,
0: now, very grateful I got a chance to meet and, and work with him. What was it like uh, at that point working with your father, uh, having that working dynamic? Uh, uh, did he teach you a lot of sort of basic lessons about I, editing? Yeah, you know, I had I had two mentors,
1: my dad and uh, and Sydney, and both gave me various you know points. I, I was my dad always insisted that I know everything. He said the only way to know if somebody's doing a job wrong is to learn how to do their job. So I basically ground out from the start. I had to know how to do sound. I didn't know how to deal with music, had to deal with, with picture editing and also generally dealing with people, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think because of that, I think because of that hammering of of learning everything and knowing how to do it well, it's helped my career immensely. I mean I learned dialogue from an incredible person, Kay Rose, who was still on film. But amazing tricks and amazing things you can do with sound and dialogue that that she taught me, and then came along with Sydney, and and his strong suit obviously is, is acting and learning how learning acting and and story, and that's one thing my dad always drove home to was story. You know, you have to know story, performance, how to build a performance. People are under the impression sometimes that actors just. They they show up on screen and it's an incredible performance and, and they they've done it all by themselves. It's it's a team effort, you know. I mean, yeah. you you never shoot in continuity. Very rarely shoot in continuity. So if you have a very difficult scene, and actors in the middle of it, they're kind of bracketing things and trying to find their way. Also, so you have to try to find. I've started many scenes where where I think they're. The, a person will be going one way and then, not, and then cut like 15, 20 minutes in the middle of a movie and then go back and oh, we have to readjust this whole thing because we've gone in a different direction. It's really about learning acting. I think if one of the biggest things I would ever do to start over again, or an advice, I would yeah. have editors go learn acting, story, acting, rhythm. Rhythm something you can't teach, something you have to feel. Is that
0: pace as well like pace knowing how pace moments, rhythms knowing yeah.
1: knowing rhythms, how to change a rhythm with inside a rhythm you know it 's uh, uh, it 's very easy to be metronomish when you cut, especially dialogue, and knowing how to internally change rhythms in a scene to try to to pick up not only pace yeah. but on direction of what the scene's trying to tell you you know within the story it 's always kind of a bigger picture it 's never one individual scene that makes a whole movie. It's a lot of different scenes that make a whole movie.
0: Sometimes when you're reading a screenplay uh, before the film has ever been shot, uh, do you like to sort of get a general sense of, of what the screenplay is, or do you kind of, when the film is done filming completely... Do you sort of have a, a concept of what the film is, or do you just like to look at the raw footage and say, I'm just going to edit from the raw footage and not really look at the screenplay? Actually, uh, no. Fully. Actually, uh, I like to read a script. I like to read a
1: script straight through. Yeah. Just I don't even read descriptions. I just read it straight through and see if the story makes sense, see if the story's interesting. Um, then you can start to see whether, if it works. I mean, usually I have this very strange inherent thing. That I, can, I read it, and if I like it, I get very involved with it. If I if it loses me somewhere along the line, I try to go back and figure out where it, is it loses me. Depending on who you're working with, is how far you can push your ideas. You know, they can come out later. Yeah. Um, it's it's really I think it's why I've gotten along really well with writers, writers, directors, writers, because what basically what we're doing is taking their words and rewriting them with film, and the understanding and the, and the bridge between those two pieces, those two mediums of writing and film, are not that far apart. And really, I mean, it's like with Steve Clovis on uh, Faber's Beggar Boys, who wrote it. Yeah. We got along amazingly, because you could see how not only what his intentions were writing, the
0: dialogue was terrific, but you could, he saw how you rewrote the words on film. He saw the translation of what a script page could be, sort of going into the filmmaking process. Absolutely. It was a
1: learning experience for both of us because we were both kind of, we didn't have any restrictions on what we could try and what we could do. We were both flying a little blind, so experimenting was was great. And, uh, you know, that's the difference between film now and video. I mean, in, in film you had to, you had to think out your plan. You had to plan of attack because you're making splices and you had a lot of bulk of stuff and you couldn't immediately change your mind in the middle. And you could cut yourself into holes and and dead end corners and have to start over again. Yeah. And and really, that's the only difference between working on film and video is is just it's a tool. It's a it's a better tool than we had with movieolas and I mean I came up with movieolas and chems and then Lightworks, and then various other ones and now i'm with avid and i think it's probably the best
0: system out there for a tool for what i do so you don't really have a nostalgia for the old you know cutting film i liked it you know i i
1: I, I thought the mystique of the film You used to walk into an editing room with film and there was bins and trims and you had to have incredible assistance that was what the whole process when i first started was you know there was a there was an established system. It was At one time, it was eight years before you could even cut. Then it was moved down to five, which, thank goodness, it was for at the time that I started. But your organizational skills had to be amazing. I mean, there was... you If, if you cut a piece of film and you came down to frames and you had boxes of frames, then you all had to be marked because if somebody came back and asked for a frame, you better know where it is. And video now gives you... It gives you much more latitude to make mistakes. It gives you a lot yeah. more latitude to to try different things quickly and then cast them away. Where in film, you didn't have that
0: that option. You had to really make a commitment to a decision. You had to make a commitment to a film. scene and say, this yeah. is the
1: direction I'm going. And then the thought process was always beforehand rather than during. And I mean, I even find myself now with video, I just go, and go into something and go, oh, geez, I'm, I've gone the wrong way. And it can just delete it Put it, make a copy of it, stick it away someplace, and start over again. And it's speed that way, yes. Yeah. The thinking process is not sped up. It's just people are under the impression that that video, this new age of video editing and everything, is just making the whole process faster. It it really, in my opinion, doesn't, because you can't speed up the thinking process. You can you you be able to you can explore faster. Yeah. And maybe in that case. You can, you, can, you can expedite the, 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 uh, the, the actual scenes, but you still make the same amount of mistakes. You still spend a lot of time trying different things that aren't
0: going to work. So you still, the time averages out, at and, and least in, in what I've seen. Yeah, sort of along that line, uh, your collaboration process with directors. Uh, I guess we could start with Sidney Pollack, mm-hmm. who you did so many films with. Uh, I guess Tootsie was sort of the first one that you were more at the helm with. right. Uh, so what was he like, you know, someone, every one of his films sort of explores a different genre. So does he work differently based on the genre of the film or is he very, uh? No, Sydney was, Sydney's a brilliant
1: storyteller yeah. and, and he's, he was even more brilliant with actors. And he always liked to fancy himself as a good editor, but he knew he wasn't, you know, and that's pretty much why we stayed, we had a, the collaboration between all three of us at the time when I was working with my dad with him. And later would not with him. It was a second language that we knew. He knew that he trusted us enough to take a scene and come out of it with something that not only that he wanted, but maybe something he hadn't thought of. And each film was was a little bit different. It was always performance driven. Always it was. One thing was hammered into me with him is you you have to have consistency in performance. You have to look for something. It's nuance. It's anything besides just words because it's easy to just
0: say words so was sort of looking beyond just the dialogue in a scene and seeing the behavior of what the actors behavior are doing. it's it's right. all about
1: behavior and it's all seeing how and all's working together you know it's very difficult to shoot out of continuity and and he had this amazing ability to pull it in a big picture which is always something that you that i was i strive for even today it's always looking at the big picture. It's not just one little part that works. To how is it going to affect something else? And you have a picture like Tootsie, which was difficult, and we were in the kind of short time restraints. And a lot of things that you know, you're know you dealing with, and Dustin, and as far as the relationship with Dustin and I, we're still incredible friends now, that you've got to understand actors, and he made yeah. you understand actors, and he, had, and he had this ability to take the time and teach mean what he knew and what he was thinking about
0: acting so you could find it throughout all the shows you work on with all actors. Yeah. Is that a key to really be collaborative with actors? Sidney Pollack probably was one of the directors who worked so in tunely with actors like Dustin Hoffman, I believe, even collaborated on the script of mm-hmm. Tootsie and was really there to uh to sort of elevate the film in a sense. I think to make I, it the best I, it could be. Yeah, I think that the, the you know, I mean it, it's it's
1: as times change, you have to change mm-hmm. everything. But everybody has to change. Schedules get shorter. Acting is still what you have to do. It's still their faces on the screen. You still have to work with them. They're not, they're not all doing this by themselves. If you have somebody that's not actually in tune with what they're doing and they don't know what they're doing ahead of time, then you then you end up bracketing performances, which they used to do all the time. You know, I, I know that uh, Al Pacino and a Woman. For a while just trying to figure out how to play a blind guy and not have to do it with sunglasses all the time. So he had to find different ways to fix his eyes and
0: still not look like he's reading or seeing something. Oh, I'm sorry. So you had lots of takes with multiple options of how he played it. Uh, Many.
1: There was over a million plus for you to film on that film. And and a lot of it was repetitive takes. And uh, a lot of it was Al searching. And... You know, and the final end of the product was pretty amazing. I mean, he was... Uh,
0: yeah. Oscar-winning performance.
1: Oscar-winning performance. The film was great, you know, and, and uh, everybody kind of did their jobs. And it was meticulous, hard work, but that was the exciting part about it. You know, if it was easy, I wouldn't like to do it. If I wasn't learning something every, every single movie, even to this day, I would
0: quit. Yeah, it's a constant learning experience. It is. It's, human behavior is never
1: the same, you know, and they have traits, but everybody's different every story is different everybody's interpretation of a story everybody's interpretation of a word is different and so you get very the, the 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 palette you get to work from is 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 immense and you know if if you enjoy your if you enjoy your job if you enjoy the editing you know it's more than just putting things together you know it's and and what you put it together with is just a tool you should be like as Sidney said, you were like a fine shoemaker. You know, you didn't yeah. tell the shoemaker how to make a shoe. He already knew how to make the shoe. It was what shoe he was making was more interesting. Yeah. Same thing with editing. Same thing with, with, especially anything you have to use something. Um, movie Movieolas were great, you know. It was a lot of physical work, but you, it was secondary. I didn't think about it after a while. I wasn't going from the movie all to the synchronizer and back and trying different things. It was all part of the system. So, you didn't, if you knew how to use the equipment, it didn't matter what you were using. The physicality of it was no big deal. Then you moved to to chems and you had big rolls and you're always constantly threading and stuff. I used to work with two or three eight plates. But I never, you know, it was a pain in the ass sometimes, film the break, do this, you know, you make a lot lot of splices, whatever. But it was still second to what you're actually doing. The
0: thinking it? process never changes based on what the technology is.
1: Absolutely not. Not, not in my case. Yeah. Not, not in my case. And, and video editing today is it's amazing. You get to try different things. I love it. You know, I mean, and, and uh, on Tootsie, I <laughs> remember I was having a conversation with Sydney. It was a scene with Terry Garr and Dustin. They were sitting in their, in their living room or something. And I kept thinking, you know, there was this idea that you always had to pivot off of something. You had to go, oh, you had to come around on this side and then go over to that close-up. And then you had, you had to always, there was like rules. The, the standard line.
0: logic of like, cut to him when yeah, you're saying yeah, that. Yeah, you know, eye lines, that. which yeah.
1: is, eye lines still apply. I and mean, you see a break on the line all the time. And this getting more and more acceptable. But I always thought, well, why can't you just go straight into him? You know, just like, you know, I used to love to just play around with going in the middle of words. So it just like was... As like people started calling it seamless, yeah. you 'll be able to go in and not really feel the cut, but you're suddenly there someplace else. And when the first time I showed him a cut kind of like that, and he goes, "Oh, what was that?" <laughs> and I go, "Well, no, it's like we tried." He goes, "Well, it works, but well, we can't do that." And it kind of got left like that because you'll see the scene and it's cut, you know, more traditionally. But as the time goes on, that idea. I don't know. I think somebody else. They said the Europeans came up with it. It
0: Doesn't matter who came up with it. But it's yeah, it sort of the the pre-lap element of having like a line come. Yeah, but in, just going just straight scene. in, no pivoting, yeah. no anything. Just going from one
1: medium wide right into a close up, right into something else, right into the person's face. And that's where acting was incredible. You know, I mean, they had to if they were in the character, they're going to be in the character in a close up and the wide shot, the medium shot over shoulder. Some of them aren't so great on over shoulders, but they had to be in the character, so it wasn't really a it wasn't a tough move to go in, yeah. and it was dramatically great in places and comedically great in places.
0: Do you ever do you ever have uh, ideas for coverage before the shooting of the film has started, where you'll tell a director, "Hey, I really think that you need this footage, you know, this close up here, this insert here, to really make the scene work." Now I do. Uh, when I first started, I was still, you know, I mean, you're learning, you're kind of learning the process,
1: and there yeah. was quite a, you know, a hierarchy of going in and telling somebody what you needed. Sometimes after the fact, you say, I really need this. And and it's only after you afford your relationship with the director at that time that they would actually listen to you, you know. It's more, I, knew, I know what I got, you know, and I have it. And now, I can go through a script, you know, it's been quite a while, but... I can go through this room and say, look, this is the way you can break it down. And I can almost cut it in my head before they even shoot it. And it's helpful, especially when it's long. And it's long, you start to find lines, dialogue that, you know, this is is said twice. This is not necessary. And you can start to have this ability to, through experience, knowing this is going to happen anyway. And
0: try to avoid it now. Or maybe Which, even playing a scene off an actor's face and just eliminating dialogue and doing it Absolutely. There's and, just
1: different things, different ways to do things and do it
0: smoothly. Yeah. And seamlessly, as that people like to call it. Uh, when it comes to sort of a first cut or an assembly cut of a movie, uh, they usually come in, you know, very long. You know, sometimes you hear about assembly cuts that come in like four hours, even if the script is like 110 pages. Uh, have you encountered that where you have such a long first cut and then you're working to sort of, minimize and bring down the pace of the movie? I'll give you two answers. One is my <laughs> standard one. Assembly doesn't doesn't I've said
1: this I've said this my whole career, so it's nothing new. Yeah. When somebody says you're going to assemble something that reminds me of being in a Ford plant that actually has directions and A goes to B and B goes to C and C goes to D. I have never in my life assembled any scene ever. What I was always told and was hammered into <clears throat> Even, excuse me, what I was hammered into, even with my dad's, like, whatever in film, whatever was on the right side that you had, was in the take-up, that was, you should be able to show that and not be embarrassed with anybody. And at the end of the time, your first cut should be able to go and show to an audience. So you have to make those decisions. I think the reason that, that some cuts are very long is that they will shoot a full script and I think that there's a lot of editors that feel that they have to show the director everything he shot. One of the things with Sidney goes, "Don't show me everything I shot for crying out loud!" You okay. know, it was it's it'll be three hours long if you do that. So you have to be able to have the confidence that you left a shot out. You have to have a reason.
0: Yeah,
1: you know, if, for everything you do, you have to have a reason. If you have no reason, then you've made a bad decision someplace. To me, is whether it be right or wrong. That's the decision I made to do. I left this out like this. I did this like this because of this. And if you don't agree with it, that's fine. We'll just undo it and, yeah. and we'll do something different. But the conviction of when I show you a first cut, it better be runnable for more than just myself. And I will not crawl under the couch because I don't like that cut or I know I just left this in a master that just it, I was never taught that way. Yeah, it was. It was not a. Uh, It was never an option with my dad. And I was like, you get in there, you dig out performance. If anything in the first cut can be a little overcut because what you're trying to do is just dig and dig and dig performance and dig out the nuance and dig out the behavior. And then you find where you can back out a little bit as opposed to a lot of editors, will, a while ago, would leave it in the master and let the director decide where to go in. I always thought that was... Uh, that wasn't part of my job I, my job was to go find it
0: and yeah. then be wrong or right and make those creative decisions as you're cutting absolutely Not waiting for the director to come in and you know dictate or right absolutely yeah. I mean, you have a master that runs
1: 12 minutes long and the scene basically should be four minutes or five minutes and if you just show a master in an assembly yeah at 12 minutes that's how movies get out to three hours long or two hours and 40 minutes and There's always that been that adage of a minute a page. Well, to me, it was always it was because of have you like
0: five page scenes? Like, have you seen five page scenes and they come out to be sort of like in like a twelve minute time frame when they're shot? Uh, Has that happened to you?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I I just I just did something long ago. There was like a it was a sixteen page dialogue scene. Yeah, and. I went, oh, this is going to be, you know, how do you make two people talking? It's saw two people, a lot of movement in a room, but it's, you know, 16 pages long. You went, how do you make this interesting? It's not like an action where you have something to cut to and you can surprise and move and you've got two people talking. Yeah. It came out probably, a page count came out at 11, 11 and a half minutes. It was too long. Even at that length, it was too long. Yeah. So I, I, I think that the page counts are, are a misnomer. It's something that was devised a little bit because of screenings with movies. You know, the theater cut off is two hours and 10 minutes, I think, something like that, so they could have another screening. If they went over 210, you lose a screening. Yeah. I'm not sure it pertains as much today because everything's on Netflix, and God knows what else. But as what I always said and I've always said to directors, I go, "Look, if it works." it works. If it works at this length, if you start to wonder what time it is, and you'll find studio executives all the time going, "Okay, what mark did this happen at?" Yeah, well, I don't, you know, did it feel too <laughs> long. No, but that happens twenty-five minutes into it. We'd like to have that moment happen sixteen minutes in.
0: Or maybe they're thinking like act breaks, like the act break comes too late. Yeah, say, I mean, uh, it's it's yeah. it's you know, it's all a process. Everybody
1: everybody has an opinion, and then and, and that's one of the hardest things about a director. They have to make the decision.
0: Because I think of uh, Sidney Pollack's The Firm which is a two-and-a-half-hour movie, probably one of the highest-grossing films of the early 90s, and it's a thriller, and it has this quick pace to it, yet it is two-and-a-half hours, and it works at two-and-a-half. Was know, that always, like, two-and-a-half works, were sticking to this? I, yeah. yeah. I think,
1: I think at that point in time, his position was, um, pro- if you were a first-time director yeah. and you were in a studio, they'd say, okay, take, take it out, and if you didn't, somebody else was going to and and the there's you know there was there was more than a couple hands full of directors that that were like that, and then towards the end of you know now there's probably three or four that can get away with that say, how, this is what, how long it's going to be yeah. um, i've I've done three Grisham shows <clears throat> all different. I think probably one of the hardest ones I ever do was a time to kill and I can't recall how long that was, but one thing about well with the firm, it just had, it, had, it was paced like, it was written like that. Yeah. So you didn't feel length as long as you are entertaining, as you were moving and moving and moving all the time. And usually something like that, people go, oh my God, that, that was two and a half hours? <laughs> I could have sat for more. And you have shows that are 90 minutes and go, man, that felt long. Yeah. It's all about interest, you know, and, and, and everybody, has, everybody has a different taste and
0: interest. Yeah, no. I think in terms of thrillers, I mean that's just a wonderfully constructed film. I've always enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was fun.
0: It was a lot of fun. You know, we um, rewrote the
1: end as opposed to what the book was, and uh, you know we had, we took a little heat from that, but it was never we we never were long. We were always right in that area anyway. So we never had like, you know, there was a possibility. Okay, we well, should we cut it down, and then you started thinking this is a, a time you really couldn't cut too much out of it. Maybe a little bit towards the end,
0: but generally not. Yeah. I was going to ask about uh, how music and sound play into uh, a cut of a film. So when you're developing a first cut and you're making those creative choices, uh, do you ever lay in temp score or sort of spot music where you think it may, might work best? You know what's funny? When, when we're on film, yeah, probably
1: very rarely that you lay in film. I mean, in music. And, in t- and you couldn't really do it unless you went to a dubbing stage and mixed it. There were found a lot of times more fight scenes and any type of action stuff you would go in and mix because there was an impossibility to sell the cut. Um, it's one of the best things about when we went to Avid and to electronic editing that you could actually do that to a point. Sidney would never like to have music. He said you couldn't tell if a scene worked if you put music over it because it's just your ear guides you through the scene, and you don't really feel link, you don't feel anything, you feel great music. If the music's great, it just takes you through. It's how MTV started, really. And they finally get doing a two-and-a-half-minute piece of music that could show you any image they want, any, any uh, speed they wanted, and you would stay with it because the music was taking you from one end to the other. Then he decided that he couldn't do it without music. So it was like, come on, come on, you gotta, you got to attempt, attempt this music. And then you find yourself not only being a music editor and trying to make choices and a lot of times it's very it's it's hurtful for a composer because you they get to live with it you know six seven weeks, and you've lived with this at least in those times you know you live with five or five six months with the same music and you fall in love with it yeah. and then they go and they, and they end up never giving you something that you like because you're so so in love with something else that you've heard and you're so used to it. And we ran into that quite a few times, you know. Where, where they're going, just make it like this, make do the music like this. So it, it helps and it hurts, you know. I mean, nobody these days can run anything without it being fully affected in music, and you know, it's it's like a finished product. Yeah. I mean, half the time now, everybody's going out with an avid mix to a theater and and having previews. It's you know, there's no obviously no more film and there's no more finishing touches, and you know in all and purposes they they don't sound that bad cuz you can do quite a bit of work on it
0: yeah and you can adjust sound levels on you and and it. it you can mix it you can do anything you want
1: on it you know you can you can uh, you can make it pretty finished i mean it, some of these people you know they put titles on and, and it looks like hey, you go to an audience and there's a preview audience and my favorite thing is is nrg people or whoever else is out there they go what you're going <laughs> to see is an unfinished product there's going to be and they say you know grease pencil marks and there's going to be splices well they can't say that anymore <laughs> And now they go, it's an unfinished thing. There's just a little bit of temp music and there's really no effects and blah, blah, blah. And they see it and they go, what are you talking about? This is like, I don't know what else you're going to do with it. It's fully scored and it's fully affected for most intents and purposes. Yeah. So their reactions are completely different than what they were looking for. You know, they go, what's the finished product? I mean, my, I mean if you put titles on a film and general audience, you show it to them, they think it's finished.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't see why not. I mean, I saw a preview screening uh, not too long ago and they had you know the logo of the film oh, yeah. And they still went in and said, well, we're not really perfected, but, you know. Yeah, could looks- you
1: please comment on what you didn't like? <laughs> well, I don't know, you know, I know. Well, the music's temporary, so I don't get to comment on that. And the sound's really not that done and, and there's going to be some dialogue replacement and they're going, huh? Yeah. You know, and the savvy people in Los Angeles, yeah. You know, they're going to go, oh, yeah, well, this is, you know, they all, everybody likes to be a critic. <laughs> and... Generally, my taste, I'd much rather just listen to an audience. It's very difficult in a, in a drama, but in a comedy, you know if you got them or not. Yeah. And you know, and hopefully in a drama, if you've got them or not, how much movement's in an audience. But to select, this is my opinion, <laughs> if you select 15, 20 people to come in to be a critic after the movie, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You might get a few people that are, you know make a good point. And most of the time people are just, you know, they they pick on stuff and you go, well,
0: there's not much you can do about yeah, that. sometimes kind of, they get a little nitpicky about it. Yeah, you know, or you have or one you know, person
1: right. say something that one person has said, in a, in a, I don't know, anybody has said. They go, see, you know, <laughs> see, I told you, and go fix that. So I don't know, I'm I'm ambivalent about the preview process as it is today, but
0: I, I have a lot of people argue against that. Yeah. With me. I, I might be one of the only ones. Uh, well, I think about, uh, in terms of music, uh, Dave Grusin, who worked with mm-hmm. Sydney Pollack so many times, uh, what was their collaboration process like? Uh, I think they did Tootsie together, uh, I leave The Firm as well. Yeah, The Firm was an amazing,
1: amazing... The piano thing. score, I love. So it was all really piano. brilliant, yeah. I mean, I watched Dave. Dave's an amazing, amazing composer. And uh, and they worked so well together. It was... I mean, but watching Dave on The Firm he would be inside of the piano bouncing ping pong balls off the <laughs> strings and doing all these weird things and it was awesome. it was it was an amazing score what he came up with and uh you know like everybody everybody t- you know tries different composers they try different editors you know I mean Sydney wasn't um you know always always with us or me um but he always came back you know it, it was normally schedules were yeah. messed like up. I think Owen
0: Roysman, a uh, cinematographer, he worked with so many times. Oh, it was incredible. Uh, he was,
1: he was, and I still see Owen every so often. They had a, a secondhand language they didn't have to speak. You know, they knew what each other were doing. There was a trust thing. And, you know, it's like everybody says, if you want to make a good movie, you surround yourself with the best people. Yeah. You know, I know it's been said by a million people if I was to direct a movie, I would certainly go find the best cinematographer, the best writer, the best sound, the best everybody, so I can get a complete picture of what I want and have the input and the, and the, and the creativity from these people you draw from them all. You can never stand there as a dictator, as a director, and expect to, f- to know everything. Yeah. It's, just a, it's, a, it's one of the biggest faults, I think, with some young directors these days. They don't want to surround themselves with, with knowledgeable people. I mean, they, a, a little bit is, you know, oh, this guy's kind of like my father, you know. And I was there at 28 and dealing with people who are 60 and late 50s. Yeah. And all I was a sponge. I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. These people knew more than I did. And if you go into it that way, like right now in my career... I, I was dealing with this this young uh, director. Her name was uh, Amelia Ferrari. Ferrari. She sought me out to see if she could help her film. Her film was brilliant. It needed to needed a hand, and she wanted a a, a senior hand in what yeah, she was. This is to it.
0: recut uh, a version that she. To had recut had. it, yeah. yeah. And, I,
1: and unfortunately, I didn't. I, I was leaving for Europe, and I couldn't do it. But I gave her notes and, and went through it and, and took an interest in it. It had nothing to do with money or anything else. just took an interest in her. Yeah. I took an interest in her interest and in, in my expertise at this point in time of my career. And that's what's lacking these days. I have met you know enough younger directors who, who think they, they, they basically know it all. So it's very difficult to help them with something if they're not open to something. And... I, I mean, at this point in time, I'd love to give back. You know, what I mean, I think yeah. it's important to keep this knowledge going. Nobody's teaching anybody anything anymore. You know, even even the editing rooms, you're down to one assistant who's a mechanic on a on a computer, and they never get a chance. I let all my assistants cut. I I want them to learn. They would how, cut whole scenes, and you. I would, haven't let them would, cut you know. from the start. Wow. You know, we'll go through dramatically what you want out of it, comedically what you want out of it. Anything what you want, pace-wise, everything else. I go, here, go try it. That's the best part about Avid and, and this electronic. Is we go, go in there and do it. Don't sit around here and do nothing. Yeah. I want you to go in and do this. And I want you to present it to me. And I'll critique it. And if I like it, that's going to be good for you. You know, If not, you're going to learn something from me. I have so many assistants that have turned into editors that... Those, these are the people that want to learn, you know? I mean, how I used to learn, I used to do my assistant duties, and I'd have, on um, shows I used to shoot in Europe, they'd double print film. So they would have one set of prints of, of dailies that would go to Europe, and another set would stay here. And when it was all over, at 10 o'clock at night, I'd whip out all this film and start practicing cutting and doing stuff. Same thing with sound. Same thing with everything. I did a scene in a, a picture called Bobby Deerfield with Al Pacino and Mark Keller. I was an assistant one of Sidney Pollack's no uh, Sidney Pollack's films. Yeah. <laughs> and at night I would I caught a balloon scene. It was a balloon regatta that they were in. Oh, they're in the hot air balloon. Yeah. Uh, going over. Yeah, and I worked on this thing for I don't know, a week, maybe more. Put sound effects to it. Did this whole thing It was all on film. And then at dailies one day, I looked. I I gotta. I told my editor, I got something to show you. And there was to another editor on at the same time. I think at the time, Dave Brotherton. And they ran, and he goes, "Wow, you know, it was like, was, it was not only edited, but it was also sound effect and everything else." And uh, he made a few suggestions, and I went back and made these changes, and then put it away. And I remember Sydney getting back, and I don't know what day it was, when it was, and I said, "I want to show you something." And he looked at it. and goes, this is freaking great! You know? And it was like, woo, this is fun. You know, I've I've actually learned something yeah. along the way, and got the guidance. I mean, I'm, they might have used ideas within the side of the material I did, but it was just the idea that it was scary to show it. But it was time to to to. But you had made an initiative
0: to absolute work. And I had to learn practice. how to do
1: it. You have to learn how to do it. People want to jump things. Film school is wonderful, but film school is producing nothing but people that want to come out and already know. They think they know how to do everything, and they want to jump in and be d- directors and producers, and they 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 get lost, you know. We didn't invent the wheel. Yeah. Nobody. It's somebody way before us invented the wheel. We put new spokes. We change the tread. We do this. We do that. It's still a wheel, and. Until I don't think we're ever going to really invent the wheel. You know, and we've got video now, and that's fine. You can shoot tons of footage, and not waste out you know, camera and, and film uh, mag time. But you still have to tell a story. You still have to know how to tell a story. Yeah. And I think that somewhere along the line, the apprenticeship in this business, like being second third assistant cameraman and being an you know, assistant sound and you work your way up through the ranks a little bit it doesn't have to take as long as I used to say it does but i think you have to know you have to get a little bit of first-hand experience from people that know how to do it yeah and then if you want to improve it if you have a better way to do it that's great i'll listen if you have a better way to do it i'll listen if an assistant comes in and shows me a scene that he's done that I had in my mind already how I was going to do it, and it comes out different. And I wow, this is this is really different. Don't take credit for it. This is a, this is how you promote somebody. Yeah. you know, as a director, if you want to get
0: ahead, you have to make that. You have to do the extra work. You have to you do have- the extra work. You have to
1: be able to want to learn, and nobody can absorb this all in four years of college. Yeah. You know, it's just the 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 business now is it's run by corporations, and it's about product. And as you can see, there's not many movies being made. And if there are, they're, you know, they have their big tentpole movies. They spend $200 million in it, and they have a library of Marvel comics you can go through forever. And But you're not making Fabulous Baker Boys anymore. Yeah. I'm afraid you're never going to see a godfather again. I'm really afraid that people are never going to see the richness of the... 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s the richest of stories and and films that were made in those times and you're not
0: seeing them made now. Even in the independent world there's less of that than there even was. Well, I don't
1: understand the money's dried up and everything and, yeah. and uh it gets very prohibitive to to shoot movies now. Um but it's it's a shame that, that it's gone away a little bit. You know, I I'm, I'm I mean, my son is, is my assistant now, and I'm doing the same thing that I mean, my dad did. And and he's learning. He spends time. I've got an avid set up in a room in here. yeah, And it's open game for anybody that wants to use it and learn. And that's what my life's about now. That, grandkids, and I still enjoy what I do. You know, I'm not working as much. I'm also trying different things. I'm, I'm, I'm not bored, but I kind of... I like to direct. I think right now directing would be a great thing to do, because I know I could do it efficiently. Because basically, any really good director that has an editing background is gonna is gonna give you a pretty efficient film. Yeah, you know, if they have a good story, they're gonna give it to you efficiently shot. They know covers they need. They know covers they don't need.
0: Uh, you know, a lot of the incredible Hal Ashby. You know, I'll ask he won an Oscar uh, editing uh, Heat of the Night. Yeah, yeah. Works for William Man. Wyler and uh, well, a lot absolutely. Of you find a lot of these guys are, you know
1: have that type of background, and you either want to do it, Or you don't want to do it. I've I've toyed with the idea once in a while. You know, get a chance to do some little things. And now oh. it's it's not that I can do it better than anybody. That's not really a question. It's more a new challenge. You know, I think my only biggest problem would be uh, not being able to edit it myself. I think that that you know, there's one thing about when you shoot your move, shoot a movie, and you direct it, and then you have to go in and edit it. You know, the only person you can kick your ass is yourself. You know, why did I do this or why did I do that? I think that would might be the only kind of kind of sketchy part about it. Yeah,
0: you see someone like uh, Steven Soderbergh, and he directs like 12 episodes of The Nick, and then he he edits like all of them. Yeah, it's such an incredible. Uh... It's, I don't know how he does that. It's, but. A, it's amazing, you know. <laughs> but you know
1: what, though? Sometimes in this show I just finished last year, it was, a, it was a boxing movie and I was on set. And it was the director that really was open to suggestions and really a lot of help. So I was on set the whole time. Never really been completely on the set. Not, didn't cut anything. Yeah. You had to work with the actors. You had to make sure that the coverage and stuff we were getting was great. So then when I got back to the editing room, I found it was a much simpler process. I already knew what I had. It wasn't like new and fresh coming in. I already knew what we shot. And I going, eh, we should have got that, but we didn't. So at least that process of, of being there, seeing what's shot gives you a much a bigger leg up in the editing process. You're not trying to guess what somebody else have is trying Have you done do. that often where you've been on the set of a film uh, during you, a shooting? Uh, I've done it a little, but usually in, in, in times where where uh, all the films were, you know, lots of footage, and you just get so buried, and you still have time, yeah. time schedules and everything. I mean, you know, Out of Africa was over a million-plus films. Scent was well over a million-plus film, uh-huh. and printed film. And, and the last show I did on film was A Time to Kill. And that, to me, was one of my best, my best editing jobs I'd done was on that film. What was uh, Joel Schumacher like uh, to collaborate with? Joel was amazing. He just let me, he let me go. He, he just said, you know, I want you to do this. It was probably one of the hardest scenes I've ever had to cut in my whole career it was the rape of a little black girl at the beginning of the show. I, I, for the life of me, kept putting it off, putting it off, and, and the first time I kind of showed some uh, and he goes, this is not, you've got to go deeper. And I'm going, oh, God, I just having. I can't, I can imagine what it's like to be in a plane crash. I can kind of guess and kind of get in that world. I can get in the world of anything really, but raping a nine-year-old little girl, I just as a world I couldn't get my mind into and found myself just resisting. And then finally, I said, okay, I had to let it go. And I was by myself, I had a big crew and it was like midnight one night and I had everybody in. I think there was two girls and a couple guys, but I sat on the couch and I said, here, let's look at this. And I turned the lights on and I looked behind and I had tear. two of the people had tears in their eyes. It was like shocking. So I remember remember and Joel, I go, well, maybe we got a little too far, you know, but if that wasn't, that scene wasn't horrendous, you would have never justified Sam Jackson's suit shooting those two kids. Yeah. And then the whole show would have completely. It's the
0: inciting apart. incident of the of the whole story. It had
1: to be so horrendous that you could justify the shooting of those two guys, yeah. and that was a challenge. That was that was really um, probably one of the hardest scenes I've ever had to cut.
0: That film had some great, uh, you know, standout performances some breakthrough performances. Matthew McConaughey, Matthew, Matthew Samuel McConaughey. Jackson. Yeah, uh, Matthew really was
1: uh, Matthew was just new. They took a chance on him at that time. Joel supported and took a chance on and matthew was we got to be very good friends i mean we worked on the weekends and just trying to keep involved where he was what he was you know in with inside of the movie and it was helpful to him and it was fun for me
0: yeah uh some directors names i just want to kind of throw Mm -hmm. out there uh, one is Steve Cloves, who we talked about with the Fabulous Baker Boys. That's one of my favorite films. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what was he was a he started as a screenwriter. I believe that was sort of the first film that he had directed. It was his first film. Actually, um, late Mark Rosenberg was one of the producers,
1: and he and and Sidney Pollack were producing partners at that time. And uh, Steve was the first time director, and they were trying to find a match, and there was a lot of people that. That, that that were being suggested to them, and and Sydney for the f- the first time said, "I think this would be a good fit," you know, young guy, first time, really my first kind of juicy thing that I was going to be on my own. And Steve and I met, and we hit it off immediately. It was just uh, amazing um, pairing, really, between the two of us. And we forced ahead, and it became a kind of a family with Jeff and Bo. Bridges, and Michelle, who was coming up at that time, yeah. and it was an experience that I'll never forget, it really was, I mean, it was capped off
0: by a nomination, but... Yeah. It was such great casting to have Jeff and Bo, you know, playing real brothers as they are brothers, yeah. and and the the dynamic they had, and the conflict, it was just, it was so real, and there was kind of a, a grit to it. Yeah, really it almost didn't happen at the
1: time, I think the studio didn't want to have a Bo, which we never could figure out, but... And then you know there was a time where Michelle got hot, and she was carrying the show, and it was kind of like want to lessen Bo's part and bring up Michelle's part, and Steve you know stood his ground. I mean it was his he was he learned a lot, I learned a lot in that film, yeah, and and stood behind what he wanted to do, and I and it, I think it it came out. It was a, it was just incredible experience.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then another, uh, Martin Brest uh, did *Son of a Woman*. Uh, and Al Pacino went on to win an Academy Award. Uh, really interesting film. A great dynamic between Chris O'Donnell and Al Pacino, and, and their chemistry. Uh, so, how would you sort of say Martin Brest was as a collaborator, and what was his uh, process like, Marty?
1: And in my Marty had a little time, tough time making his mind up. We had shot so much, yeah. there was just so much shot, and the finding the dynamics between Chris's character and Al's character was was paramount at the time, because it, a little too much was too much, and too little was not enough. And so we experimented. We were also a little bit behind the gun at that time too. We had a and there was two. We brought well, Mike Tronic came on and uh, And then Harvey Rosenstock came on, but there was i mean the, the, the there's a thanksgiving scene dinner scene that I did that it took me a week to cut, and there was probably i don 't know how there was seventeen twenty thousand feet of film on it wow. and trying to go into each scene like that and try to make adjustments and find different things we just we're, we're going to run out of time. So it, it, I think it came out incredibly well. And that was another show that, you know, it was two hours and 50 minutes. And we had, at the studio's request, had to cut it down one time to preview. Marty didn't like it. And, I mean, I didn't really blame him at the time, but we were we were asked to do it. And uh, then it was, the edict was, if it scored the same preview-wise at two hours and Five ten minutes as it did at two hours and fifty minutes, there wouldn't be any changes. So You guys had sort of competing uh, test we, screenings. We for had two to months. we had yeah. to go and and try to do it. Uh, it wasn't done hastily. Some of it was, some of it was. You know, I mean, we fought a little bit on trying to make it too good, but I, I still had the confidence. And I, kept, I remember telling Marty, "I go, this is going to play no matter what." Yeah. I said, "This is one of those shows that just keeps rolling," and you and Al is just. So mesmerizing that i don 't think you're going you 're going to lose track of how much time you have, so inevitably what happened was they agreed to dupe two and they both scored the same. I mean it was really no difference at all, so we went with the longer version, yeah. but uh, that was rare that that 's the first time i've ever seen a show that could be cut down that much play exactly the same as it did in a longer version, and not have any effect on the audience have it, no effect on the audience and had really no effect on the story you know it just was one of those things that it was a it was a, a book that you could just keep turning the pages and it didn't matter how many pages or yeah. we just kept hoping there
0: were more i always wondered why martin Brest never kind of went on to make a lot more films uh you know he's obviously very talented and you know the work shows but i'm not sure i know that they went they followed up and they didn't meet joe black which it,
1: which i didn't do um I'm not sure, really, you know, what happened. I yeah. think that uh, the success of that movie was was very tough to top. And material is always difficult. That's why Sidney never made that many movies, you know. Was, he was constantly looking for something to make. He
0: was constantly sitting there going, there's
1: nothing out there I want to do. Yeah. And, and he was a great
0: developer of material. He would work many years, like even out of Africa, I believe, that a long time to get right it did, and almost you know everything he did very rarely would do you
1: know two pictures in two years right I mean that was that was the difficult part about working with sydney because he yeah. didn't always work and then I get sanctioned off into basically seemingly being sydney's editor and was hard to get to know and, and work
0: with other directors yeah is that's sort of the career of an editor sometimes you, know, you- try to work with a particular director, but then you sort of have to find... You have to find... Yeah, with. you have
1: to find... Inter- I mean, everybody has to eat, you yeah. know, and, and it's it's difficult sometimes. I, I mean, I find it very difficult right now because basically all the directors that I've worked with are, have died, and and um, I don't have any relationships with newer directors or anything else, and, and uh, it makes it difficult, and I don't regret it. I do regret not seeing and getting to work with more people because the people that I did get to work with, I really enjoyed. It was—I um, I don't think I really had a bad experience with anybody I have worked with. You know, even—even even, uh, you know, people that were supposed to be difficult. The more difficult they
0: were, the better I got along with them. Yeah, people sort of develop that reputation, but it's not always. Uh, I think what happens sometimes is, it's kind of a media spin or.
1: Well, I, I think that it's a spin from people that are afraid. Of, you know, I, I think if you know what you're doing, and and you're confident about what you're doing, I think is a major, major asset to yeah. somebody that is very difficult to get along with because they just, you know, as, as some people say, well, you know, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you, and I, I've just never been that way. You know, we always joke, Sydney's a joke, and and say that, and I go really, and he knew that I was a, you know, I was I was a rebel. You know, I was. It was called the young punk, and you know, I wasn't at all unused to criticizing stuff. You know, I go, "Well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen," and it was like, "Well, you think you can do better?" And, yeah, <laughs> you know <what> I mean, <laughs> but you know, it was always one of those things. My dad used to kind of cringe every so often, going, "Oh, you know, you shouldn't. Uh, maybe you can word it differently." I mean, it in a screening it was supposed to be a very dramatic moment, and I'd be laughing. And you could just see everybody, like 15 people, just freezing around me. And I'd go, I don't know, that's what it made me do. You know. And then afterwards it'd be, so, what are everybody's opinions? And, I go, and he goes, I know yours. And he'd move on his And then I'd come and go, it makes me laugh. I mean, there, it was in an out of Africa uh, scene. I said, it made me laugh. And he and, and uh, another editor had worked on it quite a bit. Yeah. And I just said, well, I don't know. I said, it, that was my first reaction. So I don't think that's what you want he goes no and so i just took it and and redid it and it it came out good i mean out of africa was a tough movie you know we ran into obstacles all over the place story-wise and and length and and logic and it just you know we had a time where we had to come in and, and and kurt ludke and and david rayfield incredible writers we had this like powwow on the weekend trying to figure out what are the where the problems were and what was not working. And,
0: because and, it was more of a character piece than it really was a plot. Uh, absolutely. Straightforward
1: narrative. Absolutely. And it was, you know, I mean, you have Robert Redford and Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep's probably one of the most, the finest actors I've ever worked with in my life. It's just, she's amazing. She can do anything. And it was always been, and I've never had a chance to, to work on another show with her. She was, it was pleasurable to cut because there was nothing really ever bad in anything she did. It was just different. And I know Sydney loved her and, and you know, the all actors, all incredibly good actors gravitated towards him. And it was you know, even working on the firm and uh with Tom Cruise and Tom was always listening. He was another sponge. You know, he was he's still this iconic star, but he really wanted him to be better, a better actor. He wanted to understand it better and I always
0: appreciated and liked him for that yeah no it's great when people of all departments sort of come in and try to figure out what other people are doing as opposed to sort of sticking to their own you know not wardrobe people over here sound people over there you know it's good for everybody to to merge together it's
1: the only way i I mean i think it's the only way you're gonna ever come out with a really good film unless you're very lucky you know i mean it's we're the last bastion of hope because you know production they, they shoot 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 and everybody goes crazy work long hours and they shut the cameras off and they go someplace else and we're left holding this big egg you know and, <laughs> and what you do with it is you know the time that you have and, and what they've actually shot and you develop whatever the problems are you fix and whatever the things are great you enhance yeah and then you it's like to me it's always like I, i've always it's always like having a baby you know, you you take nine months to 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 nurture this this pregnancy, and then you deliver the baby, and they come out, and you smack them on the butt, and people <laughs> either go, "Ooh, that's kind of ugly," or, "Wow, what a beautiful baby!" And that's kind of like a film. It used to always take us like nine months, ten months, and then you go out and you have your Sydney never really. We never did um, preview. Only movie we ever previewed was Interpreter. He didn't believe in the process. And then did at the t- at the last one, very nerve wracking for him to have people
0: come and criticize his work before he's finished. These are like the Nielsen uh, tests. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, like role. a NRG thing, or whatever those people are.
1: Yeah, but um, yeah, I've always equated it to that, and, and it is hurtful, you know. You work, and you, if you love your job, and you put your heart and soul into something which we do hours and hours and hours. I don't necessarily sit in a dark room. I hate that adage because I don't. I, I like light. But you work and you live and you die. You know, there's three stages of a movie. You finish shooting, you get into a cut, you start to make changes and you hate it. Then you make another set of changes and you kind of start loving it and then you hate it and then all of a sudden you love it or you, most of the time you always love it at the end. Yeah. And whether people like it or not is always one of those,
0: it's very subjective. You know, I mean, critics can be very cruel. Yeah. a lot of critics really don't understand the mechanics of the process they're sort of just judging it kind you of know, the well, you know, they used to they, but they used to criticize the film and the content
1: and i've noticed lately they they criticize people <laughs> just never understood <laughs> you know it's that you're not even criticizing the movie you're criticizing the person that you might not like you know you're not you're criticizing something that they've done before or here it is again or but it's never like really there 's only very few that i've read that you know really deal with the story if you have legitimate criticism or dislikes or, or dislikes that 's fine yeah that's part of this business you know that's what that 's what we're here for we 're here to entertain and you know if we do we we 're successful if we don't we don't you know i mean out of the almost 40, 38, 40 years i've been in this business i've been really successful with at, at at the movies I worked on, you know. We've had some bad ones. We've had some heartbreaks, you know, and you carry it with you for a little bit and then you go move on and you learn from your mistakes. And you know, you you're going to make mistakes. You know, as an editor, as a director, as an actor, you're going to choose the wrong project, you're going to do this, but you never you never you 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 will always give you hundred percent, hundred and ten percent, what you're doing, and at the end it comes out bad. You feel bad, you feel hurt, you get angry at critics. You know, I mean, a few times I've always gone, "Who the hell is this person?" You know, <laughs> and what do you mean you're attacking my editing? that looks choppy. What are you talking about? You know, you know what? I mean, I'm just—it's like one of those going, "Don't you tell me what I'm doing?" <laughs> and then you have to realize that that's everybody's prerogative to do. You know, you have to be—you've got to be bigger than that to accept the criticism, and you've got to accept the praise.
0: Yeah, sort of accepting praise and criticism and not putting too much weight on either. Absolutely. And at the end of the time, you have to go, I like this baby. It's the best we can do.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as Sidney used to say at the end of every movie, he goes, Listen, your grandchildren, your children, your grandchildren, they're all going to see this movie. You're happy with it. Any last things, you know? And it was always one of those moments of going, Well? <laughs> you know, we go, Well, I wish we could have done this. And then it was like, you know, it was very. And then you go know, a couple of years later you go, God, we could have done this. Or look how kind of old fashioned that was. Or or it wasn't now. But you know, it's like clothes. Styles change and they always come back. There's just very few things that continue to go on. I've never seen a group of a generation of directors and people that want to be somebody else. I have never in my life wanted to be somebody else. I've always wanted to be who I was. And if I was accused of stealing something from somebody, it was very inadvertent or it was something I liked. You're always good. The best things in the world are something you've seen. But if you come up with them and they just happen to look like somebody else, you know, there was a scene in, uh, in Baker Boys where we were doing the rehearsals and it was compared to something that, um, uh, um, Oh, all that jazz? Yeah. And that, oh, we, I stole this style. I'm like, yeah. I didn't? I don't even, you know, I did? It worked. I didn't even know what I was doing, you know? i go, like, how the hell are we going to do this? Just shoot all these people sitting there singing, singing, and doing this and this, and there's a bunch of them, and it's kind of boring. So what do you do with it? And I finally just started playing. Well, if you take the music, and then you just insert different people and different reactions and make the times feel long...
0: Then you've got something.
1: So I'm about, was well, that
0: during the uh, the auditions
1: for yes. Michelle Pfeiffer? Yeah, yeah. At one time, that audition thing was hilarious. It was very long, but it, it, as as a set piece, you, it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. And then Sydney came in one time and looked at our cut, and, Mark, and Steve and I were both, you know, very confident about it. And at the end, you know, it was oh, it's great, great. Because listen, you know that 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 uh, interview stuff. It's way too long. Really? It's great. It's, are you kidding? It's great. No, it's, really, it's really too long. And one of the things that used to always remind me, which was one of my faults, was rhythm, my rhythms could be very, very the same. I had to learn, and still to this day, learned how to change rhythms on the side of my rhythms. You know, it's like two years ago, I decided, my wife decided to have me take salsa lessons. And I did it for a year, and one of the things that this woman told me she says, is, "It's amazing how you can pound a beat out. You you can you know exactly when you're on a rhythm and when you're in rhythm and when you're in beat and when you're not beat." I go, "That's just inherent. Something you can't teach. You just can't teach that." I've in lectures and things that I've done. They go, "What is it? What is it? I said, "Some of it you can't teach.
0: Some of it's inside you. Yeah, just instinctual and you just, just instinctual and
1: sometimes you know I can't remember names, but I can remember visually." things that I've seen once and remember that in 10,000 feet ago or so that there was a shot and we could use it over here yeah. and not being always just sanctioned to, to what has been shot for this scene. You just always
0: have to open up your mind to do, what it is. Do you sometimes you cut scenes and you see the scene just playing by itself, but then you're seeing it within the context of the whole film. Is, is it sometimes sort of the, the whole is greater than the parts in a sense? Um, I, I find myself adjusting
1: yeah you know I, I i pride myself in keeping an overview of what i'm trying to do it's one of the things that's very easy to slip into is saying this scene works wonderful this is perfect and then you put it together with everything else and it's not working quite as good as you thought you know and it's it's always like the the you know plugging the dike theory you know you try to have a great beginning and you try to have a great ending and hopefully the middle kind of catches up or they know that They'll forgive a slow beginning as long as you can pick up and make a great ending. Well, now none of them are acceptable. You have to just be instantly engaged because of just the way media is today. You know, right. I mean, a perfect example is to me it was *Slumdog Millionaire*. I started it and I was like doing something. I go, Oops! I have to go start it again because they actually they made me to pay attention right from the beginning. And so now I went okay. Well, I've learned something from that. That was a brilliant movie from top to bottom. I just, the craft, everybody knew their craft, you know, and, and why it was not picked up right away is beyond me. There was a lot of very sorry people in this process. Yeah, I think it was going to go straight to like DVD or it not was, even go to theaters. Nobody wanted it. Aside. Nobody wanted I happened to be in Toronto during the TIFF and I was working on, I think I was doing Casino Jack. I think it was. And somebody said, Oh, you know, I just saw this movie, Slumdog Millionaire. I went, Slumdog, what? You know, Slumdog, you, know, you have to go see it. And I didn't see it up there, but it was just like this rage. It was like wildfire broke out and came back here. Yeah. And people started seeing it, and it was just like one of those movies that you're going, There's nobody in it. It's brilliantly shot, it's brilliantly acted. The only thing I didn't like about it, they didn't give me enough time to really absorb the story, and they start dancing at the end. That's my only criticism. If they would give me another like four minutes to really just go, oh, what a great story that was! Instead of bopping into the Hollywood Bollywood stuff, it I was my only criticism. I was going, no, not yet, not yet, please. I just, I just let the story wash over me a minute. But other than that, I mean, visually it was stunning. The actors were stunning. It was just one of those things that all the stars aligned and clicked. And, and uh, it, was, it was good. i love to see a lot more of those type of movies around.
0: Yeah, it had a great energy, a great, uh, oh, a great pace. It was Everything a pace, was, energy,
1: uh, the visuals. There was, I mean, there was no question in my mind when it came to the time for voting the Academy of what, it was just great in all categories. It was really, there's not one that very, very, not very often can you find a movie that you go, wow, this is just like perfect from here to here. And every category, every craft, every every choice that was made was just, couldn't second guess it, yeah. you know. And and I was, my hat was off to them. I, I thought it was just brilliant. I thought that was the first time the Academy actually got something right <laughs> and and just rewarded these people for making this movie. And I... You know, it's an individual, selfish thing—the Academy stuff—and I mean, I've been nominated and whatever. But—and
0: your father uh, won an Oscar. I yeah, think I've got him sitting right
1: there. Oh, wow. <laughs> the um, it—it's never been my goal to win an Oscar. I—I I find it. I, I think probably I'm—I'm I'm really not—not not reclusive, but I'm not really the most outgoing. You know industry person i don't i mean my private life is my private life and some people think it's some think i'm aloof it's not about that it's just i have to have separation from work and and family it just if i don't it just becomes just uh overwhelming yeah you know and i mean i had a family you know i was starting to have a family at 28 29 years old and they suffered a little bit because i was right in the height in the middle of my career you know and i and i was I now know the mistakes I made family-wise,
0: but career choices were all I had in mind at that time.: yeah. Is that tough for uh, a lot of young editors that you see They're trying to kind of balance uh, Well, I think right now it's very difficult because there's just not many movies being made. you know. I think yeah. that the,
1: the the tendency right now is all the younger editors are getting crushed down a little bit because everybody that has experience is coming down because it's just not making that many, many pictures. And a lot of it's television. It's a lot. I mean, I did the first time in my life. I did a pilot three or four months ago. With, and only reason I did was Taylor Hafer was directing it. And all was like, Will you do this. And I go, yeah. I've never done a pilot before. And he kept saying, "Well, your experience." I go, I don't know. did a couple a of features with Taylor. Haffer, yeah, I did right? uh, against White, the odds and
0: White Knights. Yeah. And we
1: hadn't worked together in a long time, and so the reunion was going to be fun. I thought oh, it would be great. I don't know how editors do that in, in any why well, you'd ever want to go back to doing pilots. It's the most insane schedule I've ever seen in my life. We were working 15,
0: 16-hour days, wow. seven days a week. You would think because it's only like a 50 or 45-minute uh, oh. piece, it, it wouldn't be. It was un.
1: Unbelievable. I mean, I, I I just I hated this. I mean, I really did. I said, "This is what's come down to.
0: I'm going to go sell shoes or something." Is it because there are so many notes coming in from? Well, you have to, you have so many Devils. deadlines. Every day is a
1: deadline, you know. And all yeah. the pressures on the editors because theoretically directors get two days, producers get two days, or whatever it is, and then the network. Get, three days or two days and somebody else gets two days and you're just constantly making changes and constantly chasing right. Are you editing
0: tale. while they're shooting as well? Yeah, you're editing because you basically
1: yeah. the director comes in I mean Taylor had a little bit different situation but you, they have two days you know? so if you're not showing them something good
0: <laughs> you're, they're in trouble so I was going to ask you about sure. uh, one last sure, no uh, director uh, that you worked with, George Hickenlooper, mm-hmm. who uh, tragically passed away after Casino Jack uh, was released. Uh, he had primarily done a lot of documentaries, uh, so was that a different process working with him? He was, without a doubt, in the early 50s, I think is what he was, or late 40s.
1: We hit it off immediately. He's another guy with a, was a, was a tough reputation, you know, being hard to work with. We get this guy was, I I'm so upset when they when he passed away. We were going to do another show. That, I thought I finally found my next guy that I was going to hook up with for a while. Yeah. And he was talented and he was hard on himself and but he was a shooter, and he knew script, and he knew how to make a movie. We made that movie in a very short period of time and it was all him, and then. And then, I mean, we got along incredibly well. I really liked George a lot. I miss him. He was he was really my next guy. You know, I mean, I thought this was the guy we're gonna. He said me before, and you know, I was like right after. He goes, well, we're gonna do all our movies together. And uh, so that was kind of it was shocking. He was he was
0: a great guy, a really great guy, very talented. Yeah, It was a great piece, uh, Jack Abramoff and Kevin Spacey's performance in that. Uh, really it came out to be kind of a
1: comedy, which nobody thought it was going to yeah, be. You kind know? of a satirical uh,
0: look at politics.
1: And- yeah, it was a fun film. It got kind of, for some reason, kind of got squished, but we're not too sure exactly why. But it should have done a lot better than it did. It did great in DVD, yeah. but uh, it got kind of shuffled around somehow in the distribution. I'm not sure totally, but... No, it was a fun film. It was great. Kevin was great. Everybody was good in it. it And it was a fun thing to put together. And it kind of evolved into something that nobody knew. As soon as they, you know, this was an ingredient film again. You know, you have Kevin. And you have the story. And then you have, and then you added John Lovitz in. And it added a whole different dynamic to the film. It became lighter. It became funnier. It also had its serious moments. And, but... There, the dynamic between Lovitz and,
0: and Kevin were were amazing. They sparked. It was just something. It's a great brought. casting choice. Yeah, uh, picking a comedian or a comedian. Yeah, actor I, 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 and when they part. did it, I go, "Really?"
1: You know, and <laughs> then and then I saw some of the stuff. I go, "Oh wait a second, this is like
0: really changing." And then Kelly,
1: uh, with with being, I was like, "This is starting to work." But it also took a lighter tone, and was realized it very early on like, this is taking a lighter tone. I go, "George, this is like." there's some fun stuff in here because they were selling it, you know, and, it, and if you'd read anything about it, it was, you know, serious political satire, whatever, whatever, but it wasn't comedic, supposedly. There was yeah. supposed to be a little comedy in it, but not comedic. And it turned out to be one of the, we previewed it one time. It was like, wow, this is a great comedy. <laughs> it was <laughs> like, people really liked it. And then in the end, you're going, oh, you know, and you know, Abramoff at the time was, uh, George and Kevin had, um,
0: was he cooperative in the? Main he was still in film?
1: jail when they first started doing it, and they had gone in and saw each other really well. And Kevin and, and Jack had hit it off really well. They both did impersonations, and they they had kind of his full support. And uh, but we also dabbled in something, you know, that the politics at the time. Though some of those people were still Tom Delay and all those people were still, you know, under indictment, and they were still out. And I think the film touched a little nerves and in my opinion in Washington that kind of like got suppressed a little bit and then George died and then
0: kinda of went with him. Yeah. Um sort of to wrap everything up, mm-hmm. I was gonna ask you sort of what is uh sort of a vital lesson that you would pass on to editors coming up and you sort of touched on it a little before about yeah. sort of taking criticism and understanding. Yeah, that.
1: I think I think I think you have to learn your craft. Yeah. I think there's a there's a there's a certain amount of of learning that you have to do to, it's too easy right now to get onto a video editing machine, whether it be Avid or whatever the other ones are now, um, to make images change back and forth and put something together that makes cohesive sense with dialogue is fine, action is fine. but. What they're lacking in is the knowledge of seeing how actors work, you know, and I think that learning performance, learning nuance, and learning behaviors is something that's lacking a little bit because of the speed of some of the editing that's been going on now. There's nothing ever time for it to breathe. And people are people are saying, well, it's choppy. Well, it's because nobody's taking time to find out what the scene it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be short. It just has to be... The substance has to be there. there. Has to be a reason for what the scene's there for. Yeah. you know, and and it, the bad scenes that scenes that make it out of movies a lot of times are ones that just you try forever to shoehorn them in because they're supposed to be there and they're scripted and they're supposed to be there and they have to come out. You know, it, it's it's something that um, it's a learning experience. I think they can learn writers. You can learn well from writers because writers think the same way an editor does, or they should. Because basically, all we're doing is rewriting their words, yeah. and I think they have to understand actors and acting, and I think they have to have, you know, a good sense of timing and, and, and rhythm, and I think it's a lot of practice. You know, I think this is a craft that some of some of the the, the people think they can walk in and do it without knowing what it takes to do it. I think it's become. You know, it's just a tool, this, the, the Avid and, and all the video, it's a tool. You have to learn how, learning how to use, use this tool. I could teach you in two days, you could physically go on there and start editing. Not a problem. Laptops, you know, and they came out with um, Final Cut, whatever it's called, Pro. And everybody became an editor. Everybody was, I'm editing my film now, you know, I'm editing. And, and that's fine for home movies, but. There's more to it that goes into this. You know, there's much yeah. more much more thought process of how to make a good movie. It's how to tell a story. How do you tell a story? How do you do it in an interesting way? How do you make these actors grow? How do you have their arc and their characters? How do you show that? How do you build that? You know, you have to learn how to build those performances. Somebody said, you know, well, you're a performance editor. Well that that's fine, it's a nice moniker, but that's not really you know, that, that's the strong suit is it's it's a part of it. Learning performance, learning rhythms, learning what the show's about, keeping an overview of the story, what you're trying to do. And not being
0: bogged boggled down to technical elements and the technical yeah. elements, you know, people
1: get very bogged down with matching, you know, and, and you just be all oh, matching, you know, they're they're drinking with a right hand and their left hand and they go into a quandary about, oh my god, this won't cut and you go, You know what? Just cut it. <laughs> You know, just cut it, because if the actor's carrying you through, you won't notice the bottle. I can't tell you how many times people have changed. Out of Africa, Redford's peeling an orange with Meryl Streep in the scene outside, and the orange is almost peeled, and it's not peeled, and it's semi-peeled, and it's green, and it's orange. Nobody ever sees it, yeah, because you're paying attention to what they're doing. But you get to the... I mean, the first time I looked, I go, oh, God, what am I going to do with this? Look at that. Thing. Orange is peeled. Or it's not peeled. Or the scene in... Uh, and Bobby Deerfield, I remember my dad struggling with him and Martha Keller are having Sundays. And the scene took so long that they ran out of like strawberry topping on these vanilla Sundays and they suddenly became chocolate Sundays. You know, and it was, but nobody really sees it. Yeah. You know, and if they're involved in the
0: story and the people that are telling you the story, you don't see a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And- the actors and the story become the vocal point of the scene. And that's that's what they should be. We are
1: invisible. The best editing in the world is ones you don't feel. Some of them are made to feel. Action stuff, you know, you're made to feel the cut. Dialogue scenes, you shouldn't be feeling jerked around. You should be, to me, I start a scene, I put myself in that scene. I'm one of these characters, and I I have to decide what I want to see. I want to see if somebody's reacting. Somebody's talking, what they're doing. Someone's listening. Somebody's listening, yep. somebody's doing that. I want to be, you're the one that's in control of the scene. And you have to, I, I go in front of the screens and I just immerse myself right into the scene. I, I, I can't find any other way to do it. And you kind of live and you suddenly become people. I mean, I can't tell you how long I walked around talking like Colonel Slade and, and uh, you know, Al Pacino. <laughs> <laughs>